We're live. All right, so what are we on, episode nine? I think it's ten. Oh, well, I'm not prepared. (laughs) Strength and Success Podcast, episode ten. Riley and I were on a walk last night, and we decided that we're going to call this episode after something that we talked about that she wrote down, so I'll let her intro that. But I am Trevor, this is Riley. You should probably know that if you're paying attention to this, and if you don't know that, then this is who we are. I am Trevor, this is Riley. I have an important announcement before we do that. What's your important announcement? I have officially made it in life because I have my own glam cookie. Oh! I, I was already at the dough palace. Well, you had the dough. You didn't have the cookie until last night, too. The dough is It's better. okay. Way to dull my shine. <laughs> it's fine. I'm not as cool as you. I just finally got my glam cookie. From neck to nuts. It was really popular, so it's being brought back. So if you don't follow... Deanna, the amigo. I will actually post her maybe in the show notes, but she's got a release coming. When's the release? Uh, The cookies already released last night. Oh, they released last night. I'm too late to the game. But Riley has her own cookie, Purple Presnell. Mm -hmm. Purple Presnell cookie filled with, like, cream and, like, Oreo stuff. It's it's Nutella Oreo base uh, cookie, and it's filled with Nutella and chocolate ganache that's purple and black, and then it's topped with Oreo crumbles. I love the accent from the Midwest because to me it's Nutella and to you it's Nutella. Well, I also say everything wrong to pretty much everyone. She so. adds like a W to everything. It's more like an H <laughs> than a W. HW. It's more like an H. Like if I say, you know, go pick up those boxes. Boxes. You know, or like ganache. That's a really hard That's one. That's true. Yeah, I don't think that's going to be better. But no, this is episode 10. We've got some questions from you guys. And what was the topic that we wanted to talk about? Oh. A little vulgar. So bear with me on the vulgarity here. Um, we were talking about how like people have to fuck up in order what like in order to know what to do right. Right. Um, everyone's so like hyper focused on being perfect and getting things right the first time that they do something. They're like, oh, I want to try something new, and if I'm not perfect at it, then I fucking quit. And you know, and they just freak out about it, and then they complain about it, and they're like, well, this was really hard. It's like, well, yeah, you've never you've never done it before, so of course it's going to be hard. But in order to learn how to be better at something, you generally have to suck at it first or fuck it up first. So basically, this is the you have to fuck up and fail in order to learn episode. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so episode 10 is you have to fuck up and fail, yes. which is interesting because so many people in our sports, strength sports, and just generally in life are so averse to failure mm-hmm. and averse to risk. And I guarantee, you know. Your risk aversion is important in life. It's going to decide what you do and don't do. But you literally have to fuck up and fail in order to learn what not to do to be better. Mm -hmm. So the people who are so afraid of failure they never try will never get better or learn what they have to do to be better because they literally fear failure. Yeah. Whereas you should kind of be craving some level of failure in order to learn what you need to do and what you need to sacrifice. What I think is a conundrum is that people fear failure, but they also fear success. So they will, you know, be, like, too scared to fail at something so they'll never try. But, like, in turn, that also makes them afraid of success because they're like, well, if I, if I, don't, if I don't try, then I won't fail. But if you don't try, you'll never succeed either. So yeah. in turn, be, if you're afraid of failure, you're also kind of afraid of success. Like, I don't know, no one wants to look dumb and fail at something. Like, I get that. No one wants that. Um, but, like, who cares? I don't know. Just do it anyways and, like. People really aren't, we talk about this a lot, people don't pay attention to you as much as you think people pay attention to you. Like, everyone thinks that uh, you are the only person that they follow on Instagram and that they're seeing everything that you say and they are paying attention and taking notes. Like, no one does that. No one cares about anyone besides themselves. That is made abundantly clear to us in the past 
forever, but mostly yeah. in the past couple <laughs> the, of weeks. The past forever. <laughs> uh, but mostly in the past couple of weeks that people generally don't care about anything else outside of their own thoughts, which, like, cool, be selfish with yourself. Like, obviously, you should value your time. You should value, um, like, your family, your closest relationships. You should value all those things, and you should be selfish with those things. But don't be so afraid to afraid of what other people think of you that you are like, well, if I fail at this, I'll look stupid. No one cares. I, I was reading something interesting on mindset and growth and forming habits, and Michael Matthews talked about that you are as good as your level of incompetence. And so he was pointing out that you have to actually know what you are incompetent at to grow because either you need to improve that or you find the people in your life who are more competent at those things for mm-hmm. you and you hire them to do them for you. Um, almost like paying for convenience. So for some people, it's, it's paying for coaching, paying for programming, paying for nutrition. I was just talking to an athlete who's paying for someone to prepare all their meals because they're incompetent at it, uh, myself included. So <laughs> but that was really, really uh, – Powerful is is know your incompetence because that's where you're going to find growth. That's where you're going to find improvements. So if you have incompetence in squat form, then you're going to find someone who specializes in squat form. If you have incompetence in deadlift, you're going to find somebody who specializes in deadlift and so forth. Uh, Generally, we can find a lot of incompetence. So yeah, you do have to kind of fail and look for your flaws in order to grow, in order to succeed. And it means being introspective, not egotistical. That's hard for a lot of athletes to understand because they're like, oh, look at how strong I am. Here's my deadlift. Here's my this and that. Like, dude, and you're right. Most people generally don't care as much as you think they do. You're going to have five people who are close to you, like your mother, your father, your brother, and your dog, who care. They always care. But 99% of the people who will see your posts, they don't give a shit. They don't give a shit if you got off the bench looking like a badass. They don't give a shit if you squatted beltless or belted. They don't give a shit if you squatted high or low unless it's in a meet. They generally don't give as much shit as people think. And we're so focused on what everybody else thinks, we lose sight of what we should be doing, which is looking at our own faults, our own problems, our own issues that we can improve upon because that's where success is going to be found. And let's be real. Like if your name isn't in your Instagram handle, people probably don't wouldn't know what your name is either. So like that's like a reality check I feel. Like if you're, if you're, so, <laughs> if you're so focused on like everyone's paying attention to me but your name isn't in your Instagram, people probably only know you by your Instagram name. So I feel like that's like a harsh reality check of like, oh, wow. No one actually is really that's paying a really, attention to me. That's a really tough one for us because, like, I, I don't scroll very often unless it's someone I want to learn from or interact with or talk to. So I, I only see what I'm tagged in or people send me and I'll communicate with the people. I don't usually scroll through unless it's, like, a Sunday Instagram. And so there are so many people who follow and, and maybe I've they've interacted so I follow back. But I don't recognize them by name when we go to, like, seminars and meets because they're like, hi, I'm Jill. And, and like, their, their Instagram name is, like, you know, uh, Quadzilla Muffins, whatever. And I'm like, I, I don't know who you are, Jill. You know, and I feel bad because, like, I do know them. I just don't recognize them because of, like, little profile icons mm-hmm. or something and from not scrolling. But, yeah, that is funny. Like, if, if your own name isn't even in your own Instagram, that kind of tells me you're not even proud of yourself. Like, if you're not willing to put your own name on your Instagram and it's just something clever and creative, what are you hiding from? Yeah. Uh, back to that, like, uh, talking about not being egotistical and retrospective and introspective. Um, when you're bad at something, too, it should inspire you to reach out to someone who's better at it like that's probably why most people hire coaches right if you want to get better at powerlifting you're going to reach out to a coach that can teach you how to powerlift so if you're bad at something you're going to end up eventually hopefully reaching out to someone if your ego isn't so fucking large that you don't think that you can get help from someone Um, but you're going to reach out to someone who knows how to do better than you are whether that's lifting or whether that's business you know maybe you're not good at finances so reach out to someone who knows finances or pay for someone like trevor was talking about pay for the convenience of someone else doing your finances and that's also how you make connections too so that's Mm -hmm. also how you grow and succeed and you're like okay hey I know this person who does this thing they can help me with xyz you know so like I like to 
know people that are good at other things other than just what I'm good at. Like, I don't want to just surround myself with people that are an echo chamber of what I'm good at. I want to be around people that are good, better at things that I'm not good at. Yeah, finding that person who's going to help you excel further by either investing in their coaching or investing in their, their help or their service for you and, and so forth. Uh, the expression I hate that people often say is, if you're not the smartest person in the room, or if, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And that's that's quantitative. It's like, what do you, you could be an expert in rocket science, but if you're at a football symposium, you're, you're useless. You know? <laughs> so you have to find the person that's within your room, meaning your life, who's going to help you in whatever aspect you need to get help from and so it doesn't matter if you are the most intelligent because none of you are Stephen Hawking's you're not the most intelligent person in the universe but you might be better at something than somebody else is and you can offer them that in exchange for what they are better at than you and work together yeah so success is in networking and creating your environment environment is huge for your success we also recently talked about this too making sure that the people that you're around you know they always say like you're the sum of the five people that you surround yourself with we were just talking about this last night and it's like, make sure that the people that you are surrounding yourself with or that you're trusting um, with, you know, your personal life or like if this is your friends or whatever, make sure that those people are actually adding value and they're not just taking from you. Um, we've had a good amount of commodity of discussions about being commodities. So, you know, people can treat you like a commodity a lot with taking but not giving or being uh, selfish and not selfless at all. Like there's a give and take for everything. Mm-hmm. So making sure that the people around you, not only are you just, you know, if you're taking from them or learning from them, make sure that you're giving them value back. You know, like if they're teaching you how to do X thing, make sure that you're also teaching them how to do X thing or just trying to like make sure that the relationship is balanced. Yeah. basically. And your five's going to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a hard one for people to understand. You know, life's not a Hollywood movie. This isn't Stand By Me. You're not going to grow up with the same four friends you had forever 30 years later and look back on the time you found the dead body. It's well, funny. It would be I cool thought if you did. Well, <laughs> when you said that, I thought of the movie It instead it, of Stand right, By yeah. Me. So same, same kind of concept, general like, scary like movie. Popcorn? Dead, dead bodies and stuff. I think in scary movies, apparently. Yeah, look at, look at your five. It's like, where are they going? Where are they going and do you want to go where they're going? And that's how you're going to choose your five for for right now not for life because that's always going to evolve you're going to evolve they're going to change people come and go uh sad i'm sorry i'm gonna say this but the people you know are going to be the people you know you know yeah i think five is a uh, a flexible number too it may not always be five maybe three maybe two maybe <laughs> you one. got really good two really good ones we got some questions here don't forget you guys can also pump questions in down here so we'll answer them live when you got them on here and we'll answer the questions that people have sent to us from different things <laughs> Hi, Tasha. <laughs> Tasha. Tasha's already excited. She's probably like clapping her hands and pumping right now. I wonder if she's in the shower right now. Oh, yeah. yeah. She listens to this while we're in the shower with her. Uh, good job at the current, by the way. I know. I don't think that you were like totally happy with your performance, but good job. You did great. Is, is anybody ever happy with no. their performance? You can and go nine you, for nine yeah. and bitch that you left pounds on the platform. Yeah. So no matter what, I think that's just how it's always going to be. Yeah. But um, so Trevor loves this question. It's one of Uh-oh. his favorite questions. Best reads for first time coaches. <laughs> <laughs> I do not love this question. Ah, <laughs> uh, I don't love this question because people are going to expect to learn how to have experience from somebody else's book, which is how they've extrapolated the data. And you can talk to three different scientists who will review a study and extrapolate three different opinions on that data. Science, as far as strength is concerned, is all theory. It is not fact. You're looking at what's mostly true, not as what 100% true. 
a great example of that is the calories in, calories out equation. Some people will die hard by that calories in, calories out equation. And then some other people will say, well, what if somebody has a metabolic disorder? And someone's like, well, that's less than 1%. Well, that's still 1% room for error. And then if you actually look at scientific study, there's a mean of error for about two. So it can fluctuate up and down. It's not an absolute 100% all the time. And I think experience is the most important teacher of actually working with people. And that's why I say, don't buy books on coaching or programming, although there are certain books on coaching that help you as far as dealing with speaking your athlete's language and buy-in and so forth. Those are great. Those are more psychological than they actually are on the programming aspect or exercise selection. It's like the opening scene in Karate Kid where you're trying to learn karate from a book. It's not going to work. You actually have to get in there and do some fucking karate with somebody and get thrown around a little bit or punched. You have to experience things. So it means volunteering. It means asking questions. It means getting a, a mentor who's in the coaching field that you want to be in. Um, you know, for example, I have a great relationship with Chris Bridgeford. I was actually just on the phone with him before him. I have mentored Chris for probably the last two and a half years, and it started off as a coaching relationship, and he really wanted to expand his coaching, and he's worked with other people in between. And you, you like I said, you're paying for that expertise. You're paying for that experience. So you're, you're talking to people and learning. There are plenty of books that can teach you about how the basics of programming work. There's a nuance that you're going to experience that's going to come from athlete to athlete you work with, what their individual needs are, and how they respond to things. That's why I like weekly adjustments to programming as opposed to sending someone, here's your four-week block, here's your five-week block, let me know when you're done. It's like, one, I want to be able to cue them when they're doing the movements, and I want to see things as they're going and make sure I've selected the right exercise for them to go through. And you won't know that until you test. That's what scientific data is. It's, it's getting a hypothesis, testing your theory, uh, examining your methods, make sure they work, coming to a conclusion. But, but it's all going to be theory because what works for one isn't going to work for all you're going to get an idea of what the, the majority is. So there's a lot of overlap in powerlifting. For example, everyone's going to squat, bench, and deadlift if you want to get better at squat, bench, and deadlifting. But several different coaches might have different methods. One might have you squat once a week. One might have you squat three times a week. And you can have examples of some of the daily undulating periodization where they're minimalist programs. They don't do a lot of accessory work. They might bench four days a week to get better at benching. All of it works, though. It's just not going to work for everyone, and that's what you're going to gain from experience. And what's the population you're working with? What are their specific needs? What is their training history? Where have they come from? For example, if you were to take a top-level lifter who's got a lot of wear and tear in his body and give him four days a week of benching, you're going to destroy them fast. They're already at a high level. They already have a significant amount of strength. They may not be outliers that genetically take to the bench and can bench four days a week, and they may have a lot of elbow tendonitis or bicep tendonitis issues or aches and pains or torn pecs along the way. They need probably less frequency and probably more structural balance work from like the upper back and something like that. A book is not going to teach you that. You have to go out of your way to talk to people who are doing the things you want to do to learn about experience and say, how would you handle this situation? Mm -hmm. And then I can say that. Like Chad, one of my clients will say that. He's like, I have a client who has this. How would you handle the situation? He's not going to mimic exactly what I say. He's just interested in my opinion, how he's going to handle it. Then he's going to test his thoughts and his theories and see how it worked out. Yeah. I like to look at books as less of a source for answers and more of as like a different perspective. And I also like to read books that generally don't echo my exact same thought process either. Right. Um you know, like I may, if I'm only, this is for a hypothetical example because I don't only program in conjugate, but if I was only programming in conjugate, I probably wouldn't only read conjugate books. I would probably want to read books about linear and block, um, Russian methods, all these different methods to kind of learn what it is that they do that's different than mine. Right. So that way I'm not just versed in one thing. I know more than one thing. And like... 
I am going to want to read books about communication with athletes because I think that's very underrated and most people don't know how to communicate with lifters. Um, they really suck at it really, really bad or just communicating in general. They get stuck in scientific jargon and yeah. your average lifter, 95% of them don't speak that jargon. Yeah. I mean, you could have an elite top level lifter who most of the time probably does not care that you can give me your full skeletal anatomy. Like right. if you tell them whatever, you know, bullshit that you read in a book that you just regurgitated, they're going to be like, cool, I don't care. How do I do it? <laughs> you know, like that, I just, like, that's not, that's not me taking a knock at any elite level lifters or anything like that. And because there are some that do care, but majority of the time, if they're strong enough, they just want to know how to be stronger. Right. And like you regurgitating a big 13 letter word from a book that you read probably isn't going to resonate very well with them. And they may not understand that. And it may feel like you're talking down to them. Um, I'm not going to talk to a beginner like I would talk to an anatomy professor that's just not that's that's stupid that's stupid um that's not going to be how they learn so you have to understand like how people communicate well and like what makes sense to them if they do know anatomical terms talk to them in anatomical terms they'll probably get it if they don't know it then figure out a different way so if you're only reading anatomy books or if you're only reading one style of programming books you're only going to be able to speak that one language and that may work for 80% of your lifters, but what about the other 20 that are going to drop off? You've, you've like given them, you've disserviced them basically because you weren't willing to look outside your own scope and like learn different things. Um, so I prefer to look at books that way, whereas like a new perspective or learning something new rather than just being like, okay, my question is how to be a better coach. Here's the answer book. It's right. not an answer book. It's a different perspective. It's a different approach. You try it out. You see what works. Um, you learn from experience if it does or it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, that's okay. You fail and you try a new way because you realize that that didn't work. It's all coming back together. Yeah. Uh, it's the old marketing atom of uh, sell them what they want, give them what they need. And that's really, really important because a lot of coaches and athletes even who are studying or learning things want to show you how much they know or how much they learn. They start bringing out the fucking thesaurus and putting all their seven-syllable words out there in one paragraph <laughs> to show you how intelligent they are. And all that shows to me is how ignorant they are, you know, because the athlete isn't speaking that language and the athlete's not going to understand. And, yes, it may benefit an athlete, but if they don't understand it, they're not going to buy into it. So you or have to simplify to as much as – yeah, it, you know, you have to simplify the way that they understand it and the way that they appreciate it and they actually want to do it. If you can't get them to want to do it, it's useless. You know, arguing about foot pronation isn't something an athlete's going to understand, so it doesn't matter. And for some people, it's not always the answer. You know, it's just generally, more often than not, it's the answer. So you have to look at it from, from that aspect. Am I confusing or am I educating? And if you can't simplify it to a term that a five-year-old can understand, you're probably not educating. You're just pontificating. And good for you. I hope you feel better about your education because you're not helping anybody. Yeah. Big, big egos. <laughs> big egos. We had a good one here. How can you build that environment when you don't have the support from people closest to you and a powerlifting gym isn't as accessible? Um, well, I think that – I don't know if that relates to what we were talking about early on with, like, building your environment. Uh, we're also talking about, like – you know, your friend group and the people that you keep closest. So maybe not necessarily just people that power lift with you, but it is very unfortunate if you are, let's say, confined to your your garage gym and maybe you don't always have someone to train with or like maybe your significant other doesn't train with you and you do train by yourself all the time. Um, I, that kind of sucks and especially if there's not a powerlifting gym accessible, but if that were the scenario, I would take any opportunity that I could to get in those environments where there is support. So, you know, if like one day a week you can, um, you know, get a, together a group of friends that you that are kind of in your area 
and ask them like, hey, do you guys all want to come to my garage gym and work out? You know, I don't know if that's your, I don't know if that's your situation, but you know, Instagram is a really cool thing to where you can reach out and be like, hey, is anyone in the Port St. Lucie area? Um, because I want to train. I want to get a group of people together to train. And you might be surprised how many people that you find are in the area that are close to you because not everyone's posting their location on Instagram all the time. So I feel like reaching out on Instagram first, if you're comfortable um, doing that, is beneficial. And also maybe looking to see how close the nearest powerlifting gym to you is. And is that feasible for you to drive once a week, twice a week? Um, You know, you will put, you will get whatever you will get back whatever you put in, basically. So if you're not looking for people, if you're not communicating with people, if you're not uh, putting it out there that you want to build an environment and like a group of people around you that you can lift with, you won't find it. Yeah. So it's not just going to magically fall into your lap. Sometimes you do have to find it or create it for yourself. Um, so that may be, like I said, inviting people to your garage, uh, making that drive to whatever powerlifting gym, even if it's like an hour or two, um, you know, like every once in a while we'll drive up to like perfect storm. That's a two hour drive for us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, driving down to Miami is an hour and a half driving across States three hours. So every once in a while, just to get into a different environment and be around different people, taking a car ride, isn't going to be the, like a big deal. No. Um, so you need to create the environment for yourself. It's not going to fall into your lap. No, yeah. When I was younger, I used to travel often, like once a week and twice a week. Uh, it got to a point where I was traveling four times a week. So I was driving across the Fort Lauderdale to train at CrossFit Fort Lauderdale, which was the playground gym east. I was traveling even further east to train at CrossFit Muscle Farm to work with Coach Pablo, who was a, a weightlifter from the Cuban national team. I would drive, um, again, south to Miami for different things. During Stacy's prep, we drove down the barbell benders, which was like a 45-minute drive every time to train in the mono hooks and have a crew around us and people around us. You were either traveling or you're creating, right? That's 100% correct there. So either you find people in your area network, which is easier to do than you think. Not that everybody uses Facebook anymore, but Facebook has groups from the organizations for each state. Like you can go to USPA Florida or APF Florida or uh, RPS Florida. You know, there's a lot of Facebook pages that are moderated to people and you can ask who's local, who's where. You know, you meet those people at meets and you can invite them over or, you know, you can post in your thing. Who wants to come train with me? I train at this time. This is the program we're following. I will teach you how to do these lifts. You have to be one to recruit. Many years ago when I trained in, in commercial gyms, there'd always be someone who'd come up and ask me questions like, hey, uh, I want to deadlift with you. Can you teach me how to do that? And usually they would, you know, come and join me for a little while and they fizzle out and burn out because this is a sport of attrition. A lot of people just aren't tough enough. Sorry, some of you are pussies. Um, that's just a fact. It is. So it's one of those things where you either create that environment or you travel to the environment, but the environment is out there one way for the other. It's just up to you which one you choose to do. Absolutely. I agree with that. Um, next question. One of your biggest, what is one of your biggest pet peeves preferably with coaching? Oh shit. Oh, <laughs> if we only have an hour here, <laughs> one of my biggest pet peeves, preferably with coaching. Oh man, that's really, really hard. I've talked about this a lot. Um, I think not preparing an athlete for the standards of a meet. You can see if your athlete's tagging you in a video, if their squats are high every week, you can see if an athlete is not waiting to press and they're just going right into the bench press or they're not pausing their bench or their ass is coming off the bench every single week. And sometimes I just see a coach who's just like, like the post, like the post, like the post and never comment. Now, I'm not saying that the coach doesn't talk to them personally because if there's something that is 
sometimes on the negative aspect that I have to let the deliver know, I will sometimes DM them and not post it on there unless I know them. Like, there are some people like, like Wyatt, did he? He wants me to fucking roast him. I'll, I'll tell him all the time his ass is coming up or he didn't pause his bench. And, you know, I'll be sarcastic, but I'm like, why you no pause? But, you know, sometimes a female might be a little bit more sensitive or even a male might be egocentric and a little bit more sensitive and you have to handle it a different aspect. And you have to remind them of what the standards of the meet are. And if they're not training accordingly, you know, I've had athletes who don't want to work with me because I'm constantly telling them that squat is high, that bench isn't paused, yeah. um, stop pulling with fucking straps, you know, things like that. And it, that the ego is what holds the athlete back, but it's also what holds the coach back. Mm -hmm. The coach just wants to see you lift big numbers on Instagram so he can share because it, it makes you look better as a coach when people are lifting big numbers. You know, what makes you look better at a, at a meet is when your athletes are going seven for nine, eight for nine, nine for nine, regardless of what they lift because that's individual. I don't care if you squat 200 pounds or you squat 2,000 pounds. If you had a good meet, I'm going to be happy you had a good meet. That means we did well, we prepared. You know, anything more than a six of nine kind of day is usually a good meet. If you have like a four of nine, five of nine kind of day, it's usually a bad meet. If you went three for nine or bumped out, it's because you weren't prepared for the actual standards of the meat. So that's probably my biggest pet peeve is not educating people on how they should be lifting to prepare for the sport and just letting them have a thumbs up or this is great or wow, I, I love your 700 pound hitch strap deadlift. I can't wait to see it on the platform. You're not gonna. You're not gonna see it on the platform. It's your fault as a coach because you didn't fucking tell them. Now, what about for my personal aspect of like, you coaching a lifter like what about that aspect not like in a general sense of coaching but as like being a coach what's your biggest pet peeve when it comes to a lifter dudes dropping into their dms to tell them how they should be lifting i, I guess that's not what i mean oh. like <laughs> what i should be said too though what i mean is like my biggest pet peeve as a coach talking to a lifter is the eors like oh like when i have yes. um when Drown, i have a drowning lifter, in negativity yeah when yeah. i have a lifter who Every single okay, let's say you work out five days a week, and five days a week, my texts from you are these were trash, or your texts to me are these were trash, these look so bad, these are awful, um, these felt terrible, this felt heavy, I didn't want to be here today, this was rough, I had an eight hour work day and I came in and I didn't want to be here. If every single text from you is like that. I'm going to be depressed coaching you. <laughs> like, yeah, we can't be the motivation for you. I it know. is hard to respond to those text messages. Like, I'm generally try to, like, find the wins. Like, that's what I will always do. I'm a big fan of a compliment sandwich. <laughs> like, I will compliment something, give the critique, and then compliment something else. Um, and it is very hard for me to want to give an athlete a, com a compliment when they're like, these fucking sucked. I'm like, yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> Reality is you want to say to them that's because you chose for them to be terrible. Yes, and that's usually what it is, yeah. is that it's usually something that is very well within their control. They'll be like, I only slept three hours last night and these felt like trash. Well, why do you think they felt like trash? You know? Um, so, and a lot of the times, not a lot of the times, but every once in a while you get a lifter who doesn't want to take accountability for those things. You know, where they'll be like, well, I've, I've slept for three hours every day for my entire life, and I don't always have this bad obsession. And it's like, well, it's probably catching up to you now, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> so. Nine out of ten times a bad session could be avoided by making better life choices. Yes. I mean, it's, it's really, it's like 90% of the time you will have a better session by making better life choices. Yes. You know, you didn't eat, you didn't drink, you partied all night, you, you worked hard. But you know that going in. So either you accept it and suck it up and do what you have to do, or you yeah. just say, okay, I need to lower it 5% today because I'm not all there. Or even if you're not a drinker party or whatever, you just didn't prioritize your time very well. Right. Like, we all have 24 hours in a day. Um, you know, if you can 
if there are people that are able to work two jobs, take care of a family, get their lifting in and not bitch about it, you can too. You know, like, like I, I know, um, I feel like I always think of Jake Hartman in this example because he's always someone who's like, he runs, he has a full-time job. Right. He runs a gym. He's a coach. Two he kids. has two kids. He's married. Um, he does all of these things, and he seems to yet still be successful and not be a piece of shit online. Like, he's not complaining all the time. No, actually, know? he also runs the USBA meets in, in uh, Iowa. Yes. And so, and an apparel company. Yes. He's got, like, five responsibilities that are full-time responsibilities yes. and still finds a way to train um, before he opened the gym, the gym actually opened because he needed more time. So he filled his garage mm-hmm. with equipment and was training at 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. with like Kyle Keogh at 6 a.m. who also worked like 60, 70 hours a week so they can get it in before work. Yep. They prioritized their training that way to make sure they did it first. And that, that work ethic carried over now to where he's like does his day job. Spend some family time, does his training, goes back. Uh, we still need to have him on. We need to fix our technical difficulties yeah. and have Jake on and talk about you know time management and goal setting and stuff like that because he's a great example of everybody having the same days, but he always looks forward to training because he enjoys it. Yeah, you'll, you will never get see a post from him and him be like, well, today fucking sucked and I'm just really <laughs> bummed. Like you'll, you'll never see that from Jake. He may be like, yeah, today wasn't the best day, but it's what we got. Right. You know, like he finds a way to like – enjoy the train like Trevor said enjoy the training anyways and like find a way to win the day so that is 100% my biggest pet peeve is because it's all controllable and like your mindset is controllable too like yeah we all have bad days we all have you know bad couple of hours where we can't pull ourselves out of a bad mood and whatever but it's always up to you you know so like texting your coach and complaining about it doesn't change the fact that your session was subpar it just means you should focus on how to win the next one make it better you mentioned texting, and that's another pet peeve of mine. If you're an athlete who's training and you're also texting while you're training, yes. you're not fucking training. Stop sending your sets after – like if you're – you finish your first set and then you immediately text the coach. Or post then, it to your Instagram story while yes. you're training. And you're already you looking your, for someone to give you approval and yeah. it's like, do you do this for you or do you do this for them? Because I guarantee you they don't give a shit about your warm-up set or how fast it moved. Yeah. No one cares. Yeah, if you uh, – Your coach doesn't even care how fast your warm-up set moved because it's supposed to move that fast. That's why it's a warm-up set. Yeah, if you're posting or texting after every single set, you're not present. Like, you're not there. Because you know that if you're sending it, if you're like, okay, set one, got to send to my coach, you know that you're waiting there for probably five minutes to see if your coach will text you back and give you feedback. So you've cooled down. uh, You've lost all your motivation to be, like, present in the lift. You haven't focused on anything that you're supposed to be focusing on. You're just like, well, my coach didn't text back. I guess I'll go do set number two. <laughs> you know, like I don't know. It's it, <laughs> we talked about this before. There's not a there's there are no powerlifting emergencies. And if you tear a muscle, God forbid, or break a bone or something, I can't do anything about that. What, in the what, moment. What's the number you dial for emergencies? Nine one one. Yeah, that's my favorite expression. <laughs> like if you have an emergency, you dial nine one one. You don't yeah. dial me because there's nothing I can do for you two thousand miles away because you had a bad day. You, you fucking dial nine one one. Yeah, I, uh, I, uh, that's another one too. Definitely like being present in the lift. Yeah. In like. If you record a set, cool. Hit stop record, put your phone down, and then go do the next set. You don't have to sit there and, like, analyze uh, exactly what you did on that set because then what you're going to be doing for set two is overanalyzing, and then you're probably going to miss something else because you're like, okay, well, i got to make sure that my pinky toe is, you know, stapled to the floor, and then you're forgetting about everything else that you have to do because you're overanalyzing. Analysis paralysis. Yeah, absolutely. 
So is that your is that your biggest pet peeve too? I have, I probably have so many pet peeves. <laughs> 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 uh, I think that's what I, I think mean. That's I, what I have many. Like, like like if you need a hype song, uh, Dave Osborne can talk about this too. He always jokes about this. Like like it's cool that when you're going for a big lift, if you want to have a hype song, if you need it every single time you're working out or you have to sniff ammonia, you have to do something. It, it's not going to be there on meat day because it's a switch that you've turned on too much. You've burnt out that mm-hmm. switch, and you're, you have no control over the music at, at most meets. So, you know, she's had the bench to Phil Collins in the air tonight in the middle of the XBC. It was like the only slow song in the entire playlist. Not even the, the cool part. Not even the drum solo. I love Phil Collins. <laughs> I also love Genesis, but I'm also old I do too, shit. but I don't know that I, like, I'm on a big stage, and I'm about to take my third attempt <laughs> bench, and it's the beginning of In the Air Tonight. Not the drum solo, not when it picks up tempo. Not it's the Mike Tyson knockout? Yeah, none of that. <laughs> and I was like, dang, that really sucks. Yeah, that's why it's important to be present and in your mind and not on your phone, not on social media, not looking at videos when you're doing things is because that's how it's going to be in a meet. Yeah. In a meet, you've got to have a blind eye and a deaf ear to the entire room of what's going on, and you have to be able to focus in on that. Yep. Um, Elvis Presley. Oh, wow. That's a, I feel like that would be, I feel like Elvis Presley would be like nice and upbeat though. I don't know, those hips are mesmerizing. You know, like his, like, his, like, little, his crooning. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. Yeah, I, I think that's a good one. I, I appreciate I'm okay with that. that. Um, okay, so next one is any drills for someone who loses balance, breaking parallel, and even a body weight squat? Oh, that's interesting. Loses balance, breaking parallel. In a body weight squat. That kind of sounds like bracing I was to about me. to say, that sounds like a real big proprioceptive issue, yeah. and your pattern doesn't match your, your morphology. Uh, mm-hmm. Speaking English, the pattern you're trying to use doesn't match your leverages. Mm-hmm. So if you have, like, really, really long femurs, and you're trying to use a narrow stance with a forward knee drive, like, you know, like a John Hack-style squat, and you're really long spider legs, it's probably not going to work. You probably mm-hmm. need a lot more hip external rotation, like spreading the hips apart to get down, maybe even a little bit more of a hinge, more of a sit back. You're going to have some forward lean if you have long legs. You know, you're not going to have a nice upright squat. So the first thing I would look at is what kind of mechanics of the squat are you trying to use? And this is where sometimes it happens where a coach has only one tool. This is how I learn to squat, so this is how you're going to squat, and we're all going to sit back to this box kind of squat. Um, it happens in the old school powerlifters. You know, the guys that were my day, this is how we did it, which is fine, and that's why they don't compete anymore or they're broken because that's how they did it in their day. They never learned any better. But chances are I would, I would check the technique you're using first, and the second thing I would look at is your torso stability. Like Riley said, you know, if you aren't braced, then there is no ability from your appendages to move around your torso freely because you aren't stacking together. So that's where I would probably look at first. Mm-hmm. Most mobility restrictions in the ankle or in the hip are usually just bracing issues because you don't know how to create stability. Your body's putting stiffness somewhere else because you're you know unstable. Yeah, I get that a lot where a lifter's not hitting depth and they're like, should I put heels on? And I'm like, no, your torso is just not safe because you don't know how to breathe into right. it. Um, you know, like I've had uh, lifters that are, you know, squatting in the fives, but then they start to cut parallel and they are not squatting to depth anymore. And I notice that they're only chest breathing. And I'm like, can you do a bodyweight squat and hit depth? And if they can do that, generally it's not an ankle mobility restriction or right. anything like Trevor said. It's the fact that they are not able to brace under load anymore. Um, so that's when I'll recommend, like, I know, uh, Trevor's a big proponent of like a counter, counterbalance squat. Yeah, I love those two. Counterbalance squat for the anterior core activation. They're learning how to use your torso to create stiffness to sit into the hole. Yeah. I also really like the, we talked about this, I think before the breathing side planks, like the side plank rows and things like that, because mm-hmm. that also is teaching you how to breathe into your obliques essentially. Um, so that would be that my first thought would be bracing. So I would practice like actually teaching them how to breathe and brace, not yeah. just, not chest breathe, not breathe the not extend the rib cage up. Um, 
actually taking a breath. I have some people who just refuse to take a breath at all before they squat. Um, <laughs> and it's it's semantics with the verbiage because you're using a cue, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, you're using a cue that the athlete understands. Your actual muscles of respiration is the diaphragm and the lungs. You're basically just filling the lungs and the diaphragm is spreading apart. But if you try and convert that to a lifter, they may not understand. So I've given a cue to the male lifters to breathe into the balls. I've given a cue to female lifters to breathe until you can feel your ovaries push down. You know, we're not looking to push the ribs down. That's why people end up rounding and crunching. Mm-hmm. And that's like a, a, a not, not the greatest cue when you tell someone ribs down because they should be fully expanding against mm-hmm. those ribs. So if they're truly taking a breath to brace, they're expanding down and across. And so when you hear Riley say chest breathing, that usually means they're breathing up. <gasps> So they're getting away from that lower expansion. That's really what we're looking for with the breathing is, you know, getting the air to travel down and fill the lungs towards the bottom and then have the diaphragm spread apart into those obliques, which is going to create that trunk stability. Yeah. The more stable the trunk, the more ability the appendages have to move around it. Yeah. Generally, people, if you say diaphragm breathing, they're like, what? But if you, like, generally most people know where, like, their obliques are. Mm-hmm. I'm like, where, where are your side cool abs at? And they're like, oh, my obliques. And I'm like, yeah. But generally people aren't going to understand what uh diaphragm is or yeah. how, to, how to move it or how to respirate it. through the lungs into the diaphragm yeah yep. um top three favorite sumo variations this doesn't say four lifters so this could be like your personal preference i guess <laughs> top, top three favorite sumo variations are sumo 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 <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry but sumo <laughs> is the most technical style of deadlift that we can use and most people don't have a good starting position or great mechanics. So if they're going to train sumo, having them do variations usually disrupts that pattern in the first place. Mm-hmm. So here's my top variation for sumo. One would be sumo. Two would be sumo with a stiff bar, so you can't just fucking grip and rip it. You have to learn to create tension. And the other one would be either an eccentric paused sumo or an eccentric controlled sumo, meaning you are controlling the eccentric all the way down, so you're learning that pattern of position by loading through the lengthening. Mm-hmm. That would be it. So it's sumo, sumo, sumo. Mm-hmm. Regular sumo with a deadlift bar, stiff sumo uh, with, with a, a dead start, not a dynamic start because most people screw that up. And then like eccentric controlled sumo. So they're all the same movement, just slightly variations of, but I wouldn't disrupt the pattern. Um, I hate when I see people doing deficit sumo because yeah. most people don't have a good sumo to begin with. So you do deficit, you make it even worse. Or pause sumo, and what happens is they just pause off the floor, and then they just ex- jerk and explode back, and they just still yank it off the floor. Mm-hmm. Sumo is is more about technical mastery. Um, it's why, like, when I spent a lot of time with the learning the weight lifts, the snatch and the clean jerk, I had to learn how to segment my pulls into two, which for a speed guy is really hard because I would just come right up off the floor, and it didn't work as well for that. It's like that was brute strength versus technique. And sumo is a lift that you have to understand leverages first. That's why a lot of people struggle with it and like, oh, sumo's cheating. It's like, well, why don't you do it better if it's cheating? Why do you do it worse? It's because they don't understand leverages. So sumo is about leverage, how tight and close you can get to the bar, not sitting too low, not squatting it up, not letting your torso and pattern break. You know, you're, you're involving a lot of external rotation, a lot of knee extension, a lot of thoracic extension, all at the same time. So it's harmonious and takes a lot of synchronization. So I don't like to disrupt that pattern with a lot of different variations, except for the eccentric loading. So you can really learn how to control that pattern up and down. Yeah, I like the I like stiff bar work for sumo because, you know, like you said, it teaches tension and like torso position because you have to get it. Um, I like slow eccentric sumos, like not necessarily like an eccentric pause, but I do like the slow eccentric sumos, slowing that movement down because then once they get to the bottom, you should ideally be in the position that you should start with. So right. all that lifter really has to do is let the weight settle on the ground. Do not do a fucking touch and go rep, but let the weight settle on the ground and then keep that same position to drive up, push the floor away from there. So that should put you in an ideal position. Um, yeah, if like, you're, some, like you said, if you're paying attention to where the bar comes down, that's why everyone's rep two is usually better on a deadlift because yeah. that's where the bar should be starting the first time. Yep. 
Um, and then I do like, I like block poles for people that are trying to learn sumo and like get into the position. So I'll eventually like progress like from a two inch uh, block to a one inch to the floor for someone who's like very new to sumo and like really learning how to do it. So that way they can feel the position change as they get closer to the ground. Isaiah says it's still cheating. It's within the rules. Uh, I guess that depends. I guess that depends on uh, if you deadlift more than we do. Yeah, do you deadlift more or less? You better deadlift at least more than Riley, because there was some guy pontificating once about deadlifts, and then Riley went and like out pulled him by like thirty pounds next to him. He just wilted. Both variations. Both variations. Like he was, yeah. he was trying to talk. He was trying to talk trash about sumo, uh, and then it ended up being that his max was less than mine. And then he mentioned something about conventional being better, and I ended up pulling more than him conventional. Yeah, 480 well. conventional max, 475 sumo max, so his argument didn't work out very yeah, well. Yeah, it did not. It was poor, poor guy. I don't feel bad for him. Uh, yeah, so another question is how to rehab shoulder tendonitis. Mm, yeah, Alex, love the online roasting. We're just being honest. <laughs> if you've you got sensitive skin, two things. Hook grip's not for you. No. And you're, uh, you're not going to last in this sport because you have to be able to take criticism. So that's, it's important. You're, you, you need to be able to lower your guard that someone can give you constructive criticism, not detrimental criticism. And there's a lot of things that people, I don't want to say do wrong, but there are things that people could do better. Mm. You know, and just that's a mindset, you know, choosing to be better. You literally have to choose to succeed. It's not going to happen on accident. Yep. Uh, what was that question again? I'm sorry. How to rehab shoulder tendonitis. I, I hesitate on rehab questions, but an itis of any kind, inflammation, mm-hmm. is usually some type of like poor pattern or overuse of some kind. Uh, so I'm not necessarily going to recommend rest, but figure out what your triggers are. Like if you're benching very frequently and you're getting shoulder tendonitis, bench less frequency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> less frequently sorry use variations that are kinder to your shoulder that are more comfortable like a swiss bar or more dumbbell work or even more machine because the machines are stabilized for you um if you're getting some anterior delt front side of your shoulder irritation maybe your upper back isn't up to par with the amount of bench frequency you're doing so maybe you need to increase the frequency of your rowing for a little while like more horizontal rowing movements um sometimes it could just be restriction a lot of people get very very tight and they're tight in the lats and tight in the pecs and they internally rotate and then benching against all that internal rotation even though the bench itself is an internal rotation just causes some grinding and wear and tear so pay attention to your mobility uh, this is more of a chronic than an acute thing so i wouldn't want to give someone advice on, on how to work with an acute injuries because i'm not a physical therapist but from like a chronic standpoint it's it's usually some type of poor pattern poor programming um or just poor structural balance it's one of those things so look at your mobility first make sure it's up to par if it's not that's the number one thing you should be doing if you're internally rotated it's very very tight strengthen your external rotation work on your external rotation stretch that internal rotation frequently if your upper back is weak compared to your press you know like if, if you are someone who benches like 400 but you still row 115 that's a dead giveaway that you need stronger rhomboids and mid traps and posterior delts i'd start prioritizing that uh, and the other thing is just like overuse, you know, if you're benching real frequently and squatting real frequently, it's a lot of wear and tear on the bar. So maybe it's changing out those variations to where it could be more SSB or more cambered bar work so you don't have to jam your shoulders in there. That could also cause it bar. or not low bar. You know, don't be afraid to use high bar. Yes, it's harder, but that's going to make you stronger in the long run, especially from the quads and different bench variations. You know, spend some time on incline, spend some time. That's one of the reasons why I like to do the floor press with the buffalo or the, yeah. or the duffalo bar. It's a lot less wear and tear on the shoulders because of the deviation of the wrist. There's no reason to be constantly beating yourself up year-round with the competition lifts. One, it's going to shorten how long you can compete. And two, you're going to perform better if you're not in pain. Pain will inhibit performance. Yeah. I also uh, generally I feel like when people have those kind of itises, um, they're also walking around like super hunched up and like, you know, with like ILS and like they're – 
their shoulders are touching their ears and they're like I have pain and I'm like have you released your lats or your traps before and they're like no why and I'm like well (laughs) I'm like well uh." but foam rolling doesn't work (laughs) so start there so yeah I like the I like that Trevor mentioned um might be tightness like restriction in your lats so like dead hangs post squats I feel like are really helpful one of the most underrated things for Mm -hmm. a lot of powerlifters would be like reverse grip and overhand grip dead hangs something that traction the shoulder and elongate the lats under some load Mm -hmm. because of all the low bar 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 work we do and how much compression comes in from any bar sitting on your back it is a compressive force to the shoulders so it's good to elongate them you know Uh, i don't remember who said it but elongate um lengthen to strengthen Mm -hmm. i wish i remember who said because i would totally give them credit but he he used the term lengthen to strengthen and that's really really valuable you know we get so over overdone on on shortening patterns and contractile and how much motor unit activation we can get. And that is important. But if you can no longer keep a healthy range of motion, chances are you're going to start having some of those bursitis and tendonitis and ultraitis and whatever itis is. You know, it's just a matter of how much self-care are you doing? Yeah, absolutely. We have... Uh, do you guys acquire any type of credentials to become a coach or do you just fall into it? It's an interesting question. Uh, I was in school to work on becoming a physical therapist, believe it or not. I had gotten work, um, an associate's in structural body work and, and I was working on towards a PTA program, physical therapy assistant at the time. And I started working as a trainer. I got certifications as a trainer. I've had many certifications as a trainer. And it, it just grew to something that I was a full-time trainer. I ended up opening up a gym. Uh, for seven years and I hated cleaning up everybody else's piss and the world was evolving to where every contest I was going to somebody wanted help with nutrition or somebody wanted help with programming and coaching and it grew to a point where that was overwhelming and I let go of my gym and just kept a couple clients for daily schedule and then when I moved away it just became entirely an online thing there are no coaching credentials needed to be a powerlifting coach some people will sell you on that bullshit I'm not knocking education, but I am knocking charging people $500 to $1,500, believe it or not, for some level of bullshit online certification that provides education. There's nothing wrong with marketing education and getting education. You absolutely should. But to sell it as a guise of a certification, like here's your barbell certification, there's not a gym, an organization of any kind that recognizes that. So you're not getting paid more for it. However, the more you know, the more you can help, the more value you have. So just understand that, that if you put in your bio that you have such and such certification, it means absolutely jack shit to anyone other than your education and your client. Um, most clients don't care if you have this certification, if you're a CSCS. You know, you need a CSCS to get in, into some organization as a strength coach as far as like schools and instructors are organized or that's their minimum buy-in. But to work with clients from a remote basis or online or even in person or even on a gym, you don't. There is no requirement for those certifications. Should you have the education? Absolutely. I will never knock education and experience, Mm -hmm. but you don't necessarily have to have it. Yeah, I kind of just fell into it. Um, When I started powerlifting, I asked a lot of questions, and I was probably really annoying. Um, No. (laughs) No. Are you saying that I'm annoying? Not at all. I'm saying you're not annoying. I'm surprised. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. That's actually great. I like to talk about this all day long, so it's good. Um... Yeah, so I asked a lot of questions in the beginning, um, not only to the coach that I initially had, um, which was not always met with a lot of answers, but to other people as well, like other people that were doing things, people that were stronger than me, uh, people that I thought, you know, were doing interesting things on Instagram, basically. You know, I would ask a lot of questions. Um, I find movement really, really fascinating. Like seeing, you know, if you put someone next to me who's, essentially built almost identically to me 
and then we both squat, we may squat totally differently. And that's so interesting to me is that everyone is so unique in that aspect that like we all move different. Like my, my squat may look different than someone next to me, but that doesn't mean that theirs is wrong or mine is wrong. It means what's efficient for them, what's efficient for me. So I always found that really fascinating. I'd be like, well, why do they, you know, like why did they have to move like that? Or like why why are they breaking down at this point? Like where are the energy leaks? Like I've always found that really, really interesting. Um, so I kind of just fell into it with like taking on like a couple quote unquote like guinea pigs in the beginning and just being like, like they knew that I was, um, not, they knew that I was brand new basically. And they were like, yeah, that's cool. Like totally fine. I trust you. We can just talk it out. And I think that that's where I learned a lot of communication too within coaching. Um, I coached some like volleyball teams when I was in high school and stuff, but that's a little bit different communication than like an online remote coach. So I learned a lot of communication with those like first couple clients that were brand new where their programming was um, totally new and they, you know, we would change all the time and I would just ask them for lots of communication. And uh, I feel like that really improved um, my coaching, but it, and it kind of just grew from there as like I continued to ask more questions. I continued to seek out like other people that could teach me things. I paid attention to like what other coaches were doing, um, what successful coaches were doing online. So yeah, I just fell into it. No credentials necessarily. Um, like Trevor said, I'm not against anyone improving their education or anything like that. It's just like, why are you, why are you getting the certification? Is it because you think that it's going to make you more credible to other people or is it because you actually want to learn that if you actually want to learn that, then that's cool. If you just are taking the course so you can put it in your Instagram bio to hopefully get more clients, you've done it for the wrong reasons. In my right. Opinion. What's your social proof? Are, are people seeing results? Because at the end of the day, that's what matters. You know, if you're a physical therapist, if people are leaving your office and they're in less pain and they're functioning better, you're doing your job. Yeah. I don't care if you have 18 other extra credentials like dry needling or, or PRI Graston. or Graston <laughs> or something else. It doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is are you capable of doing the job? Are you someone that I would want to seek guidance from? And that's what people misunderstand when they go to these certifications is like it doesn't instantly make you an amazing coach just because you've learned what that certification is. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes it makes you a worse coach because you become you leave there with confirmation bias of some kind. Like, oh, this is my hero and he says to do this, so I'll only do this. It's like you get stuck in one mindset and you have to have a very versified, verified tool, a very, very, sorry, very varied toolbox. You're going to deal with a lot of different people. So you should learn every aspect as much as you can and then decipher what's useful to your clientele. There are some people who specialize only in women, some people who specialize only in nutrition, some people who specialize, we specialize only in powerlifters. Like I don't want to take on somebody who wants to do weightlifting. Uh, Yes, I've done it. Yes, I've competed in it, but it's not my wheelhouse. I'd rather refer them out to a weightlifting coach who's going to show them much better. You know, I can look at someone who's clean and be like, hey, you need to pull your elbows higher, but I'm not that in tune where I see the lifts every single day that they are and they can then plug in the accessory movements that's going to help them you know, like snatch grip high poles or whatever, stuff like that. Uh, so that's what you have to look at. Um, like I said, I'm always for education and I'm always for certifications because at least they're giving you a test to see if you've retained that information. But it doesn't make you better or more demanding or more in demand unless you can produce a result. And sometimes when you get stuck on one information source, then that's all you have. And then you're just regurgitating their opinions and you're a parrot, you're a clone of them. And that's not going to help you with varied people. Uh, Gabriel actually joked a minute about waving with the annoying questions. Questions are good. Yeah. Questions are how I know that you care about your result. I can explain to you why you're doing something. You're more apt to put an effort when you understand why I have you doing something or what it's for. I just had a lifter that was like, sorry, I asked so many questions. And I was like, actually, it's really refreshing that you ask questions, um, you know, and like I've had a couple 
there's a difference in tone, but I've had a couple like male clients in the past before who have questioned everything I did and not in like an inquisitive way in like a, well, why should I do this sort of thing? And like an egotistical way. And I'm not an idiot. I know that you're trying to down talk me and I will school you. So don't, <laughs> don't do that. But, um, I really enjoy when people are like genuinely like, what's the thought process behind this? Um, I've made it a point to start recently with, um, Every block that I start a new lifter just being like, I always tell the lifters like the focus, like what we're focusing on, but every new block I make it a point to be like, okay, this block with your bench, this is what we're focusing on, so this is why I had this exercise um, with your squad, this kind of thing. So I make it a point to let them know that there is actually thought going into their program, and if they have more questions on it, they can ask. But if I'm just sending a program and I'm not like giving them any sort of... Um, uh, reasons why we're doing anything and they're not asking any questions like yeah that's cool you don't have to ask questions but I'm also there so you can ask questions like I do want people to um, eventually like if they want to like eventually learn how to coach like that would be super cool to me if someone was like hey you inspired me to coach you taught me enough that I feel confident in my coaching ability like that's what I want so it's never a bad thing in my opinion mm-hmm. to ask questions as long as you're not being a dickhead about it I have over 20 athletes that I've coached who went on to coach which mm-hmm. makes me really really proud because you know they've learned a lot enough to help other people yeah Versus some people are like, oh, no, you can't coach if I'm coaching you, that you have to send everyone to me. It's like, well, that's, a, that's a scarcity mindset. That's yeah. an insecure person. That's lame. Um, there's thousands of new powerlifters every year coming into the sport. The sport grows every time. Uh, the more positive people are and the more they enjoy the sport, the more people are going to come into it. We're seeing amazing athletes come into powerlifting, and everyone wants help. They want to learn. They want guidance. There's an abundance of people who need direction. So by you asking questions and learning more, you're going to spread that to more people, and people are going to learn exponentially faster than I did. The social media aspect didn't exist when I was training and competing initially because there was no Instagram. There wasn't like a Facebook where you can talk to people and you'd have to travel. Like I would drive like four or five hours to train across the state with people just to learn how they would clean a log or how they would pick up a stone. Uh, there wasn't YouTube tutorials and Instagram tutorials. And I have I have like 90. I have like 90 tutorials on my Instagram alone on how to do things or how you can help things. And that just didn't exist in my time frame. So I pay it back by putting it out there. And anyone who wants to can go into my Instagram and look at these things and see them there. Um, it took me probably 15 years to learn the stuff that's in my Instagram that you can pick up in one. And that's my, my mission is to make sure that people don't go through the pain in the same process I have and I can help expedite other people's learning potential as both an athlete and as a coach. Yeah, it's cool to have so much information readily available to you, but that's where people need to make sure that they're not getting analysis paralysis with everything that they're reading and like, you know, overthinking every single movement. Uh, there's there's a couple lifters that I have where most of my cues to them are stop thinking, just start doing um, because they will overanalyze absolutely everything. So that is like the price that we pay to having so much information um, at our fingertips all the yeah. time is that like it's like information overload all the time and you don't really know what to think. You don't know what to apply. So you just try to apply all the things. You throw the spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks and usually nothing sticks because you're trying to focus on way too many things. But it is very cool. And if you are lucky enough to have a coach that is, you know, open to being like a mentor and answering your questions, you should absolutely be asking your coach questions to understand if that's what you want. Yeah, that's important. Uh, and that, that aspect is the communication aspect. How well the athlete communicates to you because trust me, the coach cannot read your mind of what's going on in your day. Um, if they coach a lot of athletes, they don't know what day you do things because they're sending you a program that says day one, day two, day three, day four. They don't know what day you're on. 
those kinds of things. So that communication aspect as both a coach and athlete is important. You know, you be willing to ask questions, be willing to look for clarification on things, be willing to ask why I'm doing this. And as a coach, be willing to answer those questions mm-hmm. freely. Um, it's one of the questions really about pet peeves and somebody brought this up earlier. I think you actually brought up on one of the walks or something like that where someone's coach was like, uh, yeah, because I'm the coach. That's, that's why. why. Yeah. That's a terrible fucking answer. It also tells me you don't know anything. That means you don't know why you have that athlete doing that. If you're yep. refusing to answer the question, yep. it's a horrendous athlete because I'm the coach. You're going to do it. Your argument is invalid. It's like, no, they're not arguing. They're asking. Mm-hmm. They want to learn because the more they understand the movement, the more intent they can put behind it. Absolutely. So if you're a coach who dictates instead of communicates, you suck. <laughs> you yeah. just fucking suck. Yeah. So maybe that's my biggest pet peeve. Coaches who dictate instead of communicate. Coaches who suck. Yeah, me too. Coaches who suck. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to throw anyone into the bus because I really don't want to do that. But when I first started talking to Riley, um, she had asked her coach at the time, what about mobility? And his response, I can't even repeat because <laughs> it's relatively derogatory to a certain community. He's like, I don't do that blank shit. But it's like, that was the mindset. And here he, I, I was surprised. I thought he was older than me. He's actually 12 years, 11 years younger than me. And he's so broken, he can't lift. And here I am 12 years older and still lifting to the highest of my abilities. It's like, that blank shit is what's kept me alive and moving and, and moving so well at my age. It's like, that's the stuff that people don't want to do, that I choose to do, that allows me to keep doing these things at this level. And that's why it's important to ask those questions, and that's why it was important for her to seek out information from other sources instead of just the main source, because either he didn't know or he doesn't like it. Yeah, that was... A, it wasn't a good answer. I, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I start my day with that blank <laughs> shit every day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think we hit about the hour mark. All right. Oh, good. Tyler, spot on. Well, thank you, guys. That's our hour for today. We'll be back next Thursday, 1.30 p.m. Eastern. This will be uploaded so you can listen to the whole thing on any podcast network Monday. It usually gets uploaded Monday morning. You guys are free to watch the video. If you've actually made it this far and you're still on here, please share this in your story. Let people know that they can send us questions that we will answer on the podcast in great detail. And uh, and I will keep my head covered and hide things (laughs) uh isaiah we're actually ending this one so please save that question for next week and we'll answer it then we'll talk about it then hope you guys have a good one thank you